G'day, I'm Linda Ross from the Garden Clinic. Thanks for joining me today. I'm a landscape architect and I garden in a little place called Frog Hollow on the central coast. I love gardening and I love sharing gardening stories and helping uh, to get your garden looking fantastic. The Garden Clinic podcast aims to travel right across Australia, meeting Australian gardeners, creators and plant people to give us a little window into their world. The Garden Clinic aims to give you practical information so you can create that garden of your dreams. If you like what you hear on our podcast today, don't forget to give me a five-star rating on iTunes, please. It really helps getting new gardeners uh, finding what we're doing here on the Garden Clinic. Now, of course, if you've got a question anytime, head over to the Garden Clinic Facebook page and we'll answer it straight for you. It's lovely to keep in contact with you there and you can put photos of, of your garden, little plant identifications, and we can connect on Facebook. So easy these days, isn't it? The best Hi there, Graham Ross. Now, you all know I love gardening and we all know that Seasol is just simply fantastic for keeping your garden healthy and looking great. But did you know that Seasol helps with root development? This means that Seasol treated plants have a greater access to water and nutrients in the soil. This goes for everything in your garden, from your lawn to your roses, even your veggie patch. So don't just water your garden, Seasol your garden. Don't forget the Seasol. Today we meet an avid plant collector, a nurseryman, specialises in mail-order plants and cool climate treasures. His pocket-sized garden in Katoomba is a veritable treasure trove of unusual bulbs and a pretty little cottage at the back. He has now set his sights beyond Katoomba, over the Blue Mountains, to a little place called Little Hartley, where he has, over the last four years, broken his back to create Highfields, an eight-acre masterpiece. It's a pleasure to have David Kennedy on my program today. How are you? Yes, good, thank you, Linda. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Has um, gardening always been a pleasure and a business for you? Uh, Yes, it has, since I was very young. And did it start in in your grandmother's garden? And did she teach you how to propagate, or does it something was that something no. you just picked up? Oh, uh, well, yeah, she probably did actually. Uh, the hard cane geraniums, <laughs> break them off, stick them in. Them in. <laughs> I specialise in that as well. <laughs> and and what was her garden like behind that fence? Um, oh, probably very, very cottagey. That was at Valley Heights near Springwood. Um, the lower Blue Mountains. Yeah, that's right. And it, uh, yeah, it was very cottagey. She sort of had roses and geraniums and bits and pieces. Petunias. Oh, petunias. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, no, they're... no, no, petunias. Oh, petunias. <laughs> <laughs> and would you spend weekends there with your grandmother? Or? Yes, I did. Also lived with her for uh, a while as well. Ah, and was it those sorts of plants that you started with, you know, when you st- when you started your garden at uh, Clover Hill? No, not really. Um, by that stage, I had sort of got the collector's bug. And where and did that? Where did you get that bug? <laughs> where did you catch I it? I really don't know. Because <laughs> it's an interesting um, bug to catch. Really, why would you collect plants? I don't know. I think. If you're a collector, you're just. I think it's just in your blood. And what what were the plants that you collected, and and how how did um, Clover Hill come about? I moved to the Blue Mountains in 2000 from Sydney. 
I had a large garden there as well. And I moved up here to grow all the plants that I had admired in English books and magazines. So that was sort of the, the catalyst, you might say, for me moving up here. It really um, is an enviable collection of rare, cool climate gems in your garden. Pretty much impossible for the average Sydney gardener to grow. It's incredible that just, you know, a, a hundred kilometres or not even west of Sydney is a completely different climate. That you're right, you can specialise at all of those epimediums, all those English plants that are, just seem so dainty and woodlandy. A lot of them will grow in Sydney quite readily. I mean, there are certain things that you just you wouldn't even try. But I've always been surprised what people can grow down in Sydney. I've had people come back to me and say, "Oh, I bought such and such," and you said, "I wouldn't. You didn't think it would do very well." Well, it's done amazingly well. So I'm always surprised, you know, how adaptable plants can be. Well, gardeners are known for wanting to try everything out of their climate zone. That's <laughs> yeah, very true. Your garden, it's a charming cottage. It's a pocket-sized garden. How big is um, the garden at Katoomba? Oh, it's, own, it's just under about half an acre. Yeah. And obviously it's very intensively worked. There's a huge number of plants in a very small oh, area. Yeah, there is. And the amount of bulbs and, you know, different perennials that are in the garden here, you know, I just don't know how I've ever managed to cram so much into the space. <laughs> it's extraordinary. It really is a, 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 an extraordinary layers upon layers. And I think that's what the, that garden um, is, is a garden for all seasons. It's not just a spring garden, is it? That's correct. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, I love the garden here in August, in which is when we normally open up here at Clover Hill, for all the galanthus and hellebores and all of the little dainty things that you don't normally see and people sort of, you know, they're, they're collector's items and people, so people don't see them that often. And that's the time of the year I really like here. But then, you know, then it continues on through the spring and into the summer and autumn. And it's always been planned that, that way. That was always my original sort of concept uh, was to have a garden that was not just one season like a lot of gardens are. When you're looking for plants to put into your garden and plants to, I suppose, sell to the general public through the mail or the nursery, what are you looking for exactly? Um, I'm now looking for more plants that are more drought tolerant, more suitable to Australian conditions. You know, we seem to be just getting drier and drier and drier. We've, I think we've got most gardens now, we have to start to adapt. And so I'm looking for things that are tough. Does that mean so, that you, the, the origin of those plants changes? So the plants come from a completely different area of the world? Yes, I guess I'm looking more towards Mediterranean now. There's a lot of plants out there that are underused. Unfortunately, with the Mediterranean plants, a lot of them are yellow, Yes, uh, but I happen to love yellow. A lot yeah. of people don't, but I do. It's an interesting colour, yellow, isn't it? Because I do feel like when I'm looking at your garden uh, photos from the new garden in particular, that yellow is a constant. It's a difficult colour to use, but it's one of those plant combinations, those colour combinations that I think you really nail. Uh, what do you use the yellow with? You cannot go past yellow and purple. Yeah. The combination is, is just a knockout. Same with yellow foliage. If you put yellow foliage with purple, it 
you know, it really stands out. And I'm, I'm assuming that's because it's the opposite on the colour wheel, and yeah, so they're completely yeah. contrasting. But then, you know, you can use yellow on the same part of the colour wheel as well, you know, with oranges or apricots. Yeah. At our new garden, we are doing colours like that. You know, we're doing one-colour borders where we're using different colours together to show how it can be used, and we do actually have a whole yellow border. Uh, yes, that's the very first garden that you enter um, on the property. Well, let's go and... back to the beginning of this new garden because it's extremely mm. exciting. For one, there's just not many new gardens of this magnitude built in Australia. No one's as crazy as you are, David. <laughs> <laughs> no yes, one has the time true. and the effort and the I passion, <laughs> the plant material to create an eight-acre uh, eight masterpiece. But you seem to have done it over the, the last four years. Can you just go That's back right. a few steps? What was the impetus for this brand new expansive garden at Little Hartley? Room. Needed more room. Like when, couldn't you have just done a little extension? I don't know, bought the next door neighbour's place. Uh, well, unfortunately, no, we couldn't. We, we were looking at that. The garden here at Katoomba is a difficult garden because it faces south. Right. Just don't get enough light. And a lot of the plants that I love, which, you know, all the perennials, they do want full sun. I've been amazed at the growth rate, the flowering that has happened when I took plants out to Hartley. There's the they difference. Just, yeah, they just saw sun and just went, wow. And they <laughs> and dazzled you. Um, yeah. What's that property at Hartley? Has it got a home on it? We're right in the process of doing that as we speak. Wow. The frames went up yesterday. Fantastic. How exciting. exciting. Okay, so walk us through the new garden, which is called Highfields, which I think is a fantastic name. It's Thank got you. expansive views of the Blue Mountains. You get the That's sunrise cool. over the Blue Mountains, and that yep. garden is bathed in glorious sun for the entire day. Um, just walk cool. us through the design, the aspects, I suppose the, the rooms or the gardens in which you've designed. Okay, well, at, at present, we're, we're at um, stage one of the garden, probably about three three acres, maybe four, and the back part of the property is still to be developed because we're sort of waiting for the house to be built before I started that section. As you enter the garden, you come to a very formal area, which is just a circle area uh, with rock walls and lavender and bay trees, very simple, kind of plain, but still attractive. And then that's where you enter the dry garden. So the dry garden's on three levels. So it's got, it does have steps down into it. And that's probably about half an acre, I would say. The plants in the dry garden, they have to sort of, they've got to either thrive, survive, or just die. Anything that dies, I won't replace it. So it's just no additional irrigation? No. Modelled a no. little on the Beth Chateau dry gravel garden or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Problem. Well, not, I wouldn't say it's modelled on it, but the concept, um, as in her concept of not watering, yes. Which, I mean, um, her that that dry gravel garden she created 
in the driveway or the parking lot um, That's right, is yes. quite extraordinary when you visit it. It's really um, arresting. Like it's it's lovely to be in. It's got a few. Uh, this is the the garden in um, is it Somerset in England. It's mm. extraordinarily plumped full of Mediterranean plants and Australian plants. And it's in terms of the colour combos, it's just fantastic because I suppose a lot of those Mediterranean dry uh, plants are silver. So you just get That's this right. wonderful um, array of, of silver explosions. Mm, that, that's right. And, you know, I, as I said, I, we're trying a lot of different things. And, you know, if they, if they don't make it, they don't make it. I've actually been really surprised what hasn't made it. You know, things that have been, that are, you know, supposed to be drought tolerant that aren't. Like what? You know, this. Uh, I cannot remember the actual botanical name, but it's a little ground cover sort of daisy with sort of grey leaf, sort of ferny foliage. Starts with A. Oh. A-N. And famous? That's it. Yeah. That's it. Couldn't couldn't remember. But um, it's supposed to be drought tolerant and it just wouldn't take it at all. I was like really shocked. And when right. you're planting these, so I'm, I mean, we all start with our gardens and we put a bit of this, a bit of that, and it's the same sort of philosophy, I suppose, what makes it, breaks it, what doesn't doesn't get planted again. Mm. But on your on your scale, it's an extraordinary amount of plant material having oh, to yes. go in to, to fill yeah, those massive yes, um, right. spaces. And I'm still planting, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, my... My job of dividing to make patches bigger is just endless. Endless, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's lucky I've got the plant material. Well, what um, would your record be in terms of planting numbers a day? Because <laughs> I oh, find when, I, if I plant 50 plants a day, I'm doing good. <laughs> yeah, it's probably about that, I think. <laughs> I, you tend to get sidetracked between planting and weeding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's 99% yeah. weeding for me at the moment, but um, uh, yeah, I like the planting days. There's no dandelions are my worst enemy. It, they're uh, absolute scourge, aren't they? But but I'm probably coming across the wi the winds are bringing uh, the seed across, I suppose too. So it's, it'll be a never-ending story. Oh yeah, yes, unfortunately. I mean, our our, our windbreaks have grown very quickly. You know, they, they they're still having many weeds blowing in. You know, milkweed as well is just horrendous. You know, it comes up so fast. Yeah. Through the windbreaks, through the dry garden on three levels, I'm, I'm suspecting and, and expecting to see lots of those silvery Mediterranean foliages. Anything yeah. that's really yeah. surprised you with um, with the success? I think Flomus. Oh, Flomus I love Flomus. You know, they're so underused. And I guess that's because most of them are yellow. But they've been tough. So, so tough. The Flomus um, Jerusalem sage, uh, just the yellow right, yeah. one or the the paler pink? I've got I've got yellows and white, whites, pinks, purples. Yeah, quite a few. They don't really like the wet, do they? They don't like wet soils. No, look, actually, that's where I've been surprised with them. They um, actually can take it. Really? Uh, I, yeah, because when we had was it uh, was it last year or the year before when it was really really wet, they were fine. Fantastic. And I mean, our soil is a clay-based soil, so when it's wet, it's wet, and it stays wet for a long time, and they were fine. Wonderful. All right, so through the dry, uh, the dry or the, the dry garden, what's the next 
point of okay, interest. Okay, the next garden after that is the Prairie Garden. And where did and the inspiration for the Prairie Garden come from? I've always really liked Pete Ordoff's work. And actually, it was probably one of the... His book was probably the second book I purchased when I moved up to the mountains. So it's always been something I've been sort of interested in, that sort of style. And I like the, you know, all the, the dead stems and the structure, the winter structure that some of these plants have is quite amazing. I've um, always found his work to be incredibly inspiring but quite difficult, quite mysterious to actually uh, analyse the matrix that makes yeah. his work so successful because I think it could go so horribly wrong. But the matrix yeah. is when you break them down with the number of plants, the patches of plants and the repetition of those patches, quite hard to kind of get my head around. Oh, it, it, it's hard. It, it, it is difficult. And you will make mistakes and you will need to just readjust. And that's what I've... You know, that's what I'm having to do. I have to look at something and go, okay, well, that doesn't work because something is missing. You know, like you can have one sort of seed head in front of grasses and it'll look fantastic, but then, you know, other things just won't hold up. They'll collapse, so it, it won't work. And um, I suspect that type of style that, that he's so famous for, it kind of has to be varied depending on what climate that you're in. So you, the yeah. type of plants that you need at Highfields will be different to what he uses in gardens in Holland versus gardens in England, France, wherever, you know. They'll be yeah. slightly different, won't they? Well, yes, um, but also the fact is that we don't have a lot of the cultivars either, yeah. which, is, which does make it difficult for us to sort of not replicate because I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, it's my, it has to be my own style. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of that plant material that's not here. And a lot of it is actually really, really thirsty. You know, some of the, the grasses, for example, they won't flower without consistent moisture. So it is that wonderful prairie of those ornamental grasses giving that feathery volume contrasted mm. with the the seed heads. The whole um, style of his prairie garden is really a summer-autumn thing, isn't it, where the, the summer, right. you need that huge summer, the temperatures and the, the moisture for them to get to the volumes in which they need to do to move over into the senescence of the seed head tracery, I suppose, of autumn and then let them go into winter and let them see what they do in their dormant phase as they, you know, I suppose, disappear underground again. The style doesn't really pick up and start to look good until pretty much midsummer, which is a bit, a bit difficult because I also want that part of the garden to look good earlier on. So I have to think about that and use earlier flowering um, plants, you know, maybe just like common old aquilegias. Yeah, and plant them in amongst the other plants, just so that you've got colour there. Or um, maybe yeah, also... the summer you could do some spring bulbs in drifts to go. With well, that. yes, I mean I've got spring bulbs already planted down there, um, but the problem with especially daffodils is the late flowering ones. I found from my experience at Clover Hill, late flowering daffodils will stop flowering because the perennials come up oh. and cover the foliage. Right. Um, when they're trying to ripen their flowers for the next year. Yeah, so it's and then you never see the flower again. <laughs> 
It's a fine line. <laughs> <laughs> so I always use early flowering ones, which flower in August, and that's always worked. Oh, beautiful. So, all right, so we, you've got some colour combinations happening in these gardens and some colour, Some, I suppose some you've really restricted the colour in certain plant borders, herbaceous plant borders. Tell us a bit about that in more depth. Okay, well, once you've gotten out of the prairie garden, you go through the birch grove, and then there's other separate gardens, like a rock garden, a peony garden, and then you go into the the Barry Manilow garden. Oh, is, baby, really? Yeah, it's a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's got every colour known to mankind thrown into it. And oh, I love um, that description because that's pretty much everybody else's garden on the planet. Like, just when you're not a garden designer, you have a Barry Manilow garden anyway because you just stop, don't stop putting things in. Yeah, yeah, but this um, this is a bit of fun. This part of the garden, it, it's very bright, very very Coca Cabana. Fantastic! I'll bring my sunnies. Yeah, yeah you'll <laughs> you'll need them. But then you go from there. You go into uh, the monochromic mono. How do you, how do you say it? Monochromatic. Chromic. That's it. Borders. What what, what um, did you do in the monochromatic? What what? Tell me a bit about that. What's that like? Well, I'm, I'm just using uh, basically just one one shade of colour. So it will be all pinks or it will be all blues, violets, you know, whatever, oranges, etc., etc. And it's challenging. It's not an easy thing to do uh, because you've still got to have structure. And you're trying to find plants in that shade which can be quite difficult. I've, I've bought so many things that have said that they're peach. And they End up turn being out orange be, or something. Yeah, they turn out being orange or they turn out too yellow. And it's the same with the word blue. Exactly yeah. the yeah, same Yeah, because blues can be cool blues or warm blues. Mm, so, and then some of them are not, not blue at all. No. You just couldn't... Like blue bar. <laughs> It's purple. It's iridescent right. purple. <laughs> well, nice. I mean, it's a huge challenge to have thought of that in the first place, for starters, that monochromatic, well, you know, having gardens in tones or colours. Is it too challenging? <laughs> <laughs> Are you no. nailing or failing? <laughs> <laughs> I always laugh that, you know, at High Grove House, Prince Charles's place in in England, he had this monochromatic garden. And that was sort of what I was thinking of when you said monochromatic, but you mean in more colour combinations. He did a black and white garden uh, back in the day. Well, I've I've got that too. Well, it's not black and white. It's actually purple foliage combinations with other colours. Yeah, cool. I always love purple foliage anyway for the depth that it gives. Yeah. So I'm putting it in a purple foliage with orange flowers and purple foliage with pink or hot pink flowers. Yeah, cool. You know, sort of doing... So that one area of the garden is based on purple foliage with other colours. I, I always laugh, though, with Prince Charles's place. He used the Bishop of Landaff Blackleaf Dahlia oh, yes. uh, as a filler with, you know, and, you know, and white and black tulips and da-da-da, but because the Bishop of Landaff has our red flowers, he would make the gardeners yeah. pick off all the buds. <laughs> <laughs> so he wouldn't let that dahlia flower because obviously it's bright red. 
Yes, yes. Oh, so... No, well, things like that, you know, and, uh, you know, it can be difficult because, like, in the yellow garden, I've got dahlias that have got yellow flowers with the purple foliage. But you've got to look at it and think, well, is it too dark? You know, is it is it too much in your face? So it's just adjustments like that. So out came the dahlia the other day and got moved. <laughs> It's gotten thrown down back in the Barry Manilow garden. Oh, yeah, it does sound like it's perfect for Baz. It's yeah. really, I'm sure, going to be a constant journey of experimentation and of just moving things around. But the, the great thing about perennials is they're really easy to move. They're easy to dig up. They're easy to divide, make more more patches, bigger drifts. Um, and they're a very easy sort of plant material to work with. They're not like a shrub where, you know, you really can't move them around too much. Yeah, well, well that's right. I mean, perennials are so underused. And, you know, they really have got a lot to offer. Um, and you feel like you're painting, really, with them a little bit. So you're painting with different, you know, colours and tones instead of paint that's plants. But I always feel with perennials, it really is an artwork that you're creating or a patchwork. And you can play and tinker with it to your heart's content. Well, that's right. And, you know, it also it stops you from being, um, being bored. So, <laughs> what else would we be doing? You, you never get an opportunity to get bored because <laughs> you sort of think, oh, that doesn't work. Oh, yuck. So, uh, what, yeah, what are your favourite combos at the moment, your favourite plant palette? Uh, do you share my well, love of agastache, by the way? Oh, I, look, I, I do love agastaches. I mean, um, they've they've done very well out at Hartley. Um, they've never done well at Katoomba. I yeah. think it's because they don't like sand. I'm not sure. But out there, they've done amazingly well. So a lot of people listening might not know or haven't met any of the family of the Agastache or the Agastache, depending on... I don't, I don't know how, what the right um, pronunciation is. Agastache. Is it yeah. Agastache? Well, I absolutely have just fallen in love with them. They've done brilliantly in my garden with very little water. I'm on tanks, so I don't mm -hmm. have much water to spare. So for those people who haven't met them, haven't um, already added them to their garden, can you just explain a little bit about the agastaches for us? There are quite a few of them um, available now. I've grown uh, a lot from seed. I've got a, I'll have a new one, hopefully for collectors next year, um, called Champagne, which is a beautiful cream with a slight pink touch to it and you know that's that's because there's not that many whites around mostly the colors are blues and lavenders purples i just found as a perennial herbaceous perennial so they died in winter but they give so much they're such a generous perennial with the flower they kind oh, of yeah. flower for this extended period of time with these wonderful spires that really just continue to flower really from mid-spring all the way in fact i've still got blue boa flowering oh, yeah. in winter so have i yes i've actually got quite a few still flowering i thought of experimenting with a little late summer cutback mm -hmm. so once they've had their first you know big hurrah give them a little cut back and see if they come back again. And they really did. So I'm getting like nine months or of, of flowering for, of them per year, which I feel is just such a wonderful sort of stalwart in the garden to have such length of flowering from one group of plants. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, then, you know, as, a, as you said, they are tough. 
you know, they, they, they're not thirsty. The only one that probably does like a little bit of water is Mexicana. It does run slightly, not, not madly, uh, but it does like to have a little bit of irrigation. But any of the other ones, uh, they're, they're really very tough. Very tough. I, I started with the Blue Fortune, which is a very soft, powdery blue. Mm, Never yes, stops love... flowering. Is that seed viable or not? Cause, no, no, not that I'm aware of. That's just checking. <laughs> I've just got masses of it. I haven't seen... I mean, I've got big patches of it um, because it's one of the plants that Peter Ordoff is using. Oh, really? Uh, and, and for good reason, because it is good. All right, and then I suppose it's Blue Boa, which is not blue at all. It should be called Purple Blower. It really is a fantastic shade of deep purple isn't it yeah yes it, it is and it does have quite large flower heads on it and as you said it, it is a bit of a flowering fool it just keeps going and going and going I love um, those and I, as you suggested a haircut would probably be a good idea sweet lil is another one that's um easily available isn't yes. it it's kind of a little bit taller i have it in the back um sort of the backer part of my border um, mm -hmm. Sort of a right. deeper kind of lilac and pink. Yeah, it's a, sort of. A, it's a hot pink. I, I sort of classify it as. And it, again, it's it's very hardy. We've now got a new one which we call Lily's Gold, which is actually a gold leaf form of it. Oh, really? Yeah, it was it was a a branch I found on one of the plants that I had that was gold, and um, so I just propagated it and made sure it was stable and it has been stable and it's quite it's quite interesting because the gold foliage in this in the early spring just on the ground is you know really striking is that in the barry manilow garden or has it made the move to the prairie no i've, I've actually got it in both <laughs> uh, there's another one i found from the boys at antique perennials the sangria so i'm experimenting with sangria yeah that's the mexicana oh is it the mexicana yeah. it was an in yeah. great color but you think mm. a bit thirsty? I might be... Yeah, it, it might want just an occasional bit of irrigation. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, my obsession with Agastache's, um is relentless. I just think they're a really amazing new group of plants that are not really particularly well known with the gardening public in Australia, but deserve to be much better known and much more grown here. Yeah, yeah. I think I think they're a, they're a plant that's quite suitable for our for our sort of climate after those sort of monochromatic gardens where does that leave us in... okay well you go the last part of the uh, one you know single color borders is the yellow um, garden so that's pretty in your face i am putting a little bit of white in it and i probably will put just tiny smidge of blue yeah gorgeous i love that just to combo. bring just to bring it down a bit and then from there you go into our rose garden uh, ah. which I've got uh, a lot of David Austin's and a lot of species roses. Wow. I've really, I've never been a rose person, um, yeah. but I've gone berserk. Have you? I didn't <laughs> yeah. expect to hear that from you, Mr. Kennedy. No, <laughs> I never thought I'd grow, be growing roses, but I've actually really got interested in the species roses. Wow. Um, and they're not easy to get. There are a couple of nurseries still around that do sell them and you know but but a lot of the time they don't have them every year and some of them can get rather big but you know when I went to England last year we went this time last year and all the roses are out and I managed to see a lot of the species roses and just fell in love with them. 
they are big sort of big shrubby roses aren't they then they're, they're not your little dainty shrubby roses that you prune back every year no no they <laughs> can get quite big well, just as well they have the space so, to expand. yeah well i'll probably i've probably planted them way way too close hey how <laughs> have you designed that rose garden because rose gardens are difficult to design yeah yeah it, it it's just a single avenue, really. There okay. is a there is a secondary part going off of it that I haven't quite developed yet, but I but I will. So it's really just a single avenue. It's not just it's not primarily. It's I mean, there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of roses in it, but there are other perennials as well. So I'm using cat mint as a border. Oh, I love because, that. That's a great yeah, one for roses. Just, yeah, that's right. And it's just and cat the cat mint is as hardy as you can get, and it flowers for a long time. It goes well with roses, and the roses out at Hartley do extremely well because of the drier climate. They tend to get less powdery mildew and all, you know, all of those black spots, etc. They're just much better out there, and they flower so well. I mean, well, I've still s- got roses now flowering you know, in full bloom at this time of the year. In the middle of winter. So you've got that subsoil clay... La- which is great, I suppose, for roses as long as it becomes available to them. And you've mm. got that dry thatness because it's really in a rain shadow, aren't you, at Little Hartley? You don't get a huge amount of rain. Well, I, I don't think we're getting a huge amount of rain anywhere. No, that's true too. <laughs> Australia's um, in a bit of a rain shadow at the moment. Yeah, I think so. Well, you've set your sights on Little Hartley. Does that mean you'll be uh, sort of moving there um permanently and and what are your plans for Clover Hill if that happens? Well Clover Hill's probably going to become just a holiday let. Yep. So that's the plan for the time being. I may wind up selling it. You know, it'd be very hard, but the new place is taking a lot of my time. And yeah, so we're going to be running a B and B down there. So that's our major goal. Um, plus the gardens, plus the nursery, plus a tea house. Oh, fantastic. So, so we're going to be very busy. You, <laughs> you're going to need to clone yourself, let alone some of those plants. Hey, um, it's been a four-year process to, to plant and build the garden at Little Hartley. Obviously, it, it's a passion job project. It's inc- taken so much of your heart and soul that you've poured into this garden uh, when are you thinking that it will be open for the general public to come and see it well we are planning to open next year so we should have well we will have we we, we will have <laughs> all of the rock work completed so there's only, there's only a little bit left to do anyway so we're hoping to open it probably at the end of november um 2019 yeah, so probably for about three weeks, and then we'll open again in autumn. Wonderful. And then, yeah, and I do want to open down there in probably August, like I do here at Katoomba. I'm just in the process of planting a lot of my galanthus down there. So, yeah, and because I, I had to make sure that they were going to be all right, 
and they've actually done better down there than they do at Katoomba. Isn't that amazing? Look, it's a, it sounds like a, New South Wales and Australia has got itself another spectacular garden with extraordinary views and a plant selection that is par excellence. It sounds like a wonderful legacy, David, a, a true um, passion project that I'm just so thrilled to hear about and I cannot wait uh, till next year till to come and visit, to walk around, to perhaps have a lunch or um, morning tea with you and to bring groups from Sydney uh, over the Blue Mountains and visit what well, is becoming quite an interesting part of New South Wales with lots yeah. of really interesting things to see and to visit. Sort of like the gateway to the west, really, because then, you know, you hit, the bottom, you hit the bottom of the mountain and you're at Little Hartley. And what are the places to stay if we are going to come across? You've entreated us to, to go west, young man, and are there any other B&Bs to stay or little um, hotels? Oh, hotels? I, I do uh, around Little Hartley there. Um, there is a, a, a really good, good restaurant called Ambermere, uh, which is on the highway. It's an old coach sort of house. That's right. Yeah, and it's really lovely to sit outside on a spring day. Uh, and their food is really good. Well, it's thank you so much for your time today. I'll let you go back to your weeding and rock building. <laughs> rock wall building. <laughs> I really look forward to catching up with you. Thanks so much for your time, David. Okay, thank you. For more information on David Kennedy's plants, you can head to his website, cloverhillrareplants.com.au. He's got a great mail order nursery that sends plants all across Australia and a wonderful collection if you're in the business of collecting rare and unusual plants that thrive in your garden, as he says. And if you want to connect with us, just head to our Facebook page, The Garden Clinic, and we'll be able to chat and connect. And if you've got any questions about this episode or other episodes, you can just uh, send us a question on the Garden Clinic Facebook page. Give us a review on iTunes. That would be wonderful. It really helps new gardeners find us and otherwise have a happy day gardening and go safely. This has been Linda Ross with the Garden Clinic podcast. The best garden in the street. G'day, Graham Ross here. Now, you all know I love my gardening and we all know that Seasol is simply fantastic for keeping your garden healthy and looking great. But did you know that Seasol reduces transplant shock and dramatically increases the plant's survival rate when they're newly planted. Now, look, it's like an insurance policy for your plants. So when you're planting out your seedlings and new plants in your garden, don't just water them in, sea your plants. Don't forget to sea